Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, so Mahamudra and mindfulness. Uh, when, when Vince asked me to talk about this, I felt like he was leading me into a trap. Um, but we'll see how this works out. <laughs> First of all, I just want to say that I'm speaking from the standpoint of a practitioner. Um, practitioner and a, as a teacher. And so this has a number of implications about, um, for the way that mindfulness is spoken about and related to. And in the context of practice, um, the diversity of Buddhisms, of enlightenments, and mindfulnesses are reduced to the bare bones of the practice one is engaging in. So this kind of boots, uh, a boots on the ground approach, it's very direct and very simple. Uh, and though I totally recognize the necessity of being aware of the diversity within Buddhist theory and practice, and I see scholarship as being absolutely necessary to supplement practice, but from the standpoint of a practitioner or of a teacher, there does indeed seem to be one dharma. Or at least that is the straightforward simplicity we seek when we actually sit down to practice. Nevertheless, I'm speaking from the specific context of teaching and practicing within Tibetan Buddhism and within Tibetan Buddhism within the Kaju lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And at the same time, I'm speaking as a teacher of secular mindfulness. How and why that dual role is a big mistake, yet potentially a beneficial one, is what I want to unpack here today. The mindfulness movement is in many ways a secular response to and interpretation of the Buddha Dharma. It's our modern culture's way of practicing Buddhism, and it's becoming wildly popular. And many within the movement consider it to be an expedient means of Buddhism itself a code word, if you will, for Buddhism going undercover in secular society. John Kabat-Zinn, who is in many ways the pioneer of secular mindfulness, 
has even recently voiced his intention in developing mindfulness as being explicitly linked with, I quote, a universal dharma that is coextensive, if not identical, with the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma. And as problematic as that is, I am one of those mindfulness teachers. And this is not in the interest of eventually converting everyone to Buddhism, but there's an implicit goal of societal transformation. And there's an implicit assumption of the underlying unity of various teachings and practices within Buddhism. And these assumptions seem to be shared by many within the movement. Thus far, the most influential voices in the mindfulness movement have been seen from coming from Theravadan and Zen traditions. Now we're also beginning to see the signs of a convergence of the Tibetan traditions with mindfulness, a meeting that's bound to affect the way that both are practiced. But there's actually already been so much cross-fertilization among Western teachers and among different convert communities that the connections between mindfulness and the Pali Canon's notion of sati, which is a, a big discourse now about how mindfulness is connected to the Abhidharma, particularly, and also um, the Pali Canon's notion of sati. These connections are virtually as relevant in teaching situations as the Tibetan, from the Tibetan tradition, the notion of rikpa from the Dzogchen tradition, or the notion of tamalji shepa from the Mahamudra tradition. In a teaching situation, these are all mixed in there. Um, this conflation would and should have scholars tearing out their hair, but again in the classroom and in the office, this is what is happening. For example, we have in the Mahamudra tradition the essential meditations instructions of do not anticipate the future, do not review the past, rest in the essence of whatever arises. This kind of instruction and others like it could be heard equally in a Tibetan shrine room as in a corporate boardroom. As common and potentially useful as the instructions are, however, I think this brings us to our first encounter with, with what I'm calling the original oops. The mind instructions of Mahamudra and other such approaches are generally the capstone of the tradition and assume a particular course of preparation. Much of the language employed in interventions such as mindfulness-based stress reduction and other presentations of mindfulness is identical to that in the Mahamudra tradition. Much of it is. And no doubt many of these teachings and practices have benefited many people. There is, however, something disingenuous about that approach. Within the tradition itself, mind instruction presupposes years of study and practice, years of ethical training, existential reflection, intensive yogic training, and in many cases, scholastic training. After all of this training, the instruction, let go and leave be, rests in the essence of whatever arises. It enters in a much different way than for the same instruction given to a secular humanist who is taking an eight-week course in mindfulness to reduce stress. And beyond this disingenuousness, it's important to appreciate that the profundity of these instructions lies in their potentially transformative power. And that transformative power leads to experiences that can become quite painful, overwhelming, and destabilizing when one is not adequately prepared for them. And when they do occur, the preparations and context of the tradition are designed to provide support and an interpretive framework for resiliency in the midst of this adversity. Without the tradition behind it, the original oops of decontextualization can lead to more and more mistakes. Nevertheless, I think there's a way to make these teachings accessible to a secular audience. 
As a teacher and as one who has been through the ringer of this tradition, I find it very helpful to have a roadmap for this process, a way to relate to the instructions to students that is appropriate to their level of understanding and preparation. We might separate this instruction, rest in the essence of whatever arises, into three stages. The first is generally what is practiced in mindfulness interventions. The second stage goes beyond this to self-transcendence and to an understanding of the illusory nature of phenomena. And the third interpretation goes beyond this into the territory of Mahamudra. The same instruction to rest is given in each case, but with a much different result. These stages echo a common developmental typology of the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma that in the Tibetan tradition spans the entirety of the Buddha Dharma and it provides a map for the student's development on the path. In my mindfulness work, I've taken a phrase from the Mahayana Sutras that illustrates this typology and made it a guiding slogan for how I approach mindfulness facilitation in a way that seeks to meet students where they're at and yet opens the way for potentially deeper and more meaningful waters. The sutra reads, mind, there is no mind, mind's nature is luminous clarity, or mind, no mind, mind's essence is clear light. Mind refers to the first turning and works to define the divisions and dynamics of mind, to create a foundation of discipline, attention, and insight into how the mind becomes afflicted and confused, and how that confusion can be remedied and resolved. There is no mind refers to the second turning and the teachings on emptiness on the illusory nature of both self and the phenomenal world and how compassion and ethics spontaneously arise within the recognition of the non-duality of samsara and nirvana. Mind's nature is luminous clarity, the third aspect, refers to the third turning, the teachings on Buddha nature. This aspect of luminosity forms the basis of the Vajrayana and, by extension, the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen traditions. In this view, the student rests in sacred outlook, in the recognition of herself as a fully enlightened Buddha, and of the phenomenal world as a Buddha realm. As parts of a developmental typology, these three build on one another, not in so much of a constructive sense, but more as a, uh, a letting go into that which is already there, progressively. Without discipline, focus, and insight into suffering, deeper insight into emptiness and concomitant open-heartedness cannot properly arise. And without the thoroughgoing relativity, egolessness, and non-conceptual compassion, the luminous clarity of the Vajrayana cannot be adequately practiced. And when I look at the minds of students through this framework, and particularly the center of gravity of our culture as a whole, several things become quite clear. First of all, we're in the midst of an explosion of mind, the study of mind as a discourse. It's taken science over 300 years to take mind as a valid object of inquiry. And it took another 100 years for consciousness to be more, anything more than a taboo. But here we are, and the study of mind is everywhere. As for our culture's understanding of the second aspect, second stage, there is no mind. Mind, there is no mind. There are many luminaries who have begun this task of looking at no mind, at the contingency of the self, of the constructed and illusory nature of phenomena. And this way of seeing reality is making its way into the common consciousness. And we've all seen The Matrix, for instance, and this has formed a, a mythology for many of our generation. And th some, some of the things that Vince mentioned yesterday about virtue reality and technology 
unbundling the aspect of insight and wisdom. I think there's a lot of potential there. There is, however, no thoroughgoing confidence in compassion and positive action on the basis of that relativity. There are so few knights of faith, as Kierkegaard says, and both the existentialist movement and the critiques of postmodernity failed to bridge this divide and otherwise have seemed to fallen out of style. There are so few who cannot navigate this space, let alone be able to aim and sustain their attention for more than a few minutes at a time. So before we speak about Mahamudra, about luminous clarity, or about resting in the non-conceptual essence of whatever arises, there's a lot of growth that has to occur, both individually and collectively. I see this lack of maturity very clearly in mindfulness contexts. There may be teachers and programs that are very well balanced, bringing in the best of meditation techniques, like pedagogical tools, balanced knowledge, balanced knowledge of the state of scientific research, deep experience in diversity issues, ethical trainings, emotional and relational intelligences. But for Buddhists, there always seems to be an elephant in the room. It seems that no one ever asks the question, am I dreaming? Does reality that appears exist in the way that it appears, and so forth? What is the world, and who am I, fundamentally? These questions generally don't arise. Are you dreaming? What if everything you remembered having done since you woke up were a dream? What if the linear solidity of the last 10 years of your life were thrown, thrown into question in an instant of awakening? This is not to say that we should look at our experience this way necessarily, but the gap that opens up and the willingness to rest in that gap is essential if the mindfulness movement is going to move forward into deeper waters. This is pointing to a more ultimate aspect of the original oops, the original error or avidya or uh, mistake, misrecognition that's sometimes translated as ignorance. This avidya that has plagued our minds since the beginningless beginning. The Mahamudra tradition uses the Yogacara school as a theoretical backdrop for its reflections. And in that system, what is known as primordial self-aware wisdom either recognizes itself as such or fails to do so. If the, it is misrecognized, the abiding nature of mind, clarity, and emptiness becomes fractured or crystallized into two different aspects. The clarity aspect manifests as external appearance. The emptiness aspect arises and is misidentified as a self. And between that subject and object, karma is created. From this original oops, karmic action ensues, perpetuating the mistake and propelling awareness further and further from its original source or its abiding nature. Yet that nature is ever present and so recognition is possible in each and every moment. When we look at the mindfulness movement from this point of view, and without any attempts to address this original oops, mindfulness facilitation is in many ways a perpetuation of that mistake. But it doesn't have to be, and I think that a sensitivity to this and a secular application of this progression mind, no mind, can go a long way towards bringing the profundity of the Mahamudra tradition into the secular mindfulness movement. But then there is the original oops of secularism. To tease out the false distinction of the secular and the sacred, and to trace and untangle the way in which our culture collectively developed rationality, the story of the European Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, the Protestant Reformation, the rise of capitalism, all these interconnected 
and highly tortured yet brilliant contortions that make up our intellectual inheritance is a task for another day. But imagine, if you will, a small fenced-in yard with gates on each side. Imagine this is the extent of the real, according to the modernist sensibilities of our culture. There are many gates, but imagine four just for now. And the eastern gate is the gate of science, natural reason, and particularly scientism or scientific materialism. Whatever aspects of the Dharma that lend themselves to transparency, to reason and to empiricism are admitted through this door. On the eastern side is, and the northern door is our inheritance from the Protestant Reformation. Whatever aspects of the Dharma that can be separated from ritual, from iconography, from mythology, from intercession on the part of saints and sages, spirits and demons, all of these are admitted through the narrow gate and the sterilized essence of Buddhism is admitted, stripped of all of its mumbo jumbo. And through the Western gate of consumerism, of capitalism, of materialism, whatever aspects of the Dharma that will make us healthier, happier, longer living, more beautiful, more efficient, and especially more wealthy are admitted. One need look no further than the cover of the past two Time magazine features on mindfulness for examples of this. And at the Southern Gate, which we might call the Gate of Humanism, here we have another problem. The Buddha was asked, are you a god? No, he replied. Are you a demon? No, he replied. Are you human then? No, I am Buddha, I am awake. Our culture insists on human answers to human problems. We want to share our humanity with our teachers and discover our humanness in the midst of our path, spiritual or otherwise. This is all necessary to a point, but if the Buddha himself was not human, how much more is there to discover in identifying with and infatuating ourselves with the appearances of the human realm? and elevating them then to the best of them to the seeming sanctity of humanism. And how much can be truly appreciated within the confines of dualistic empiricism? And how much can the unspeakable intimacy that is the hallmark of the Mahamudra tradition of sharing awareness with one's teacher, heart to heart, mind to mind, how can this be made to fit through the narrow chinks of our modernist Protestant prescriptions of reality? These four walls and their various gates delimit the bounds of reality and in many ways define the working assumptions of the mindfulness movement. But from the perspective of the Mahamudra tradition, it's like a postage stamp floating on the ocean. To attempt to infuse one with the other would be like pouring an ocean into your front yard. It would be like the sky falling. But this is precisely what has to be done. And in some sense, it is what has already and has always already occurred. This, this was echoed in what Vince brought up yesterday about the atomic collider creating this field of chaos and potential. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche famously compared this to the sky turning into a blue pancake that suddenly descended onto our head. Imagine that. It's not so much that we should have the experience of the sky falling, but there's a gap in what we think we know, in what we think we can control, and we are called to wake up and become transparent to that non-experience. Indeed, the sky has already fallen. The end of the world as we know it is dependent upon the world as we know it. And the ocean of Mahamudra pervades all of the twists and turns of modernist sensibilities and is already expressed in the mindfulness movement and all of its various methods, virtues, false promises, insights, blind spots, successes, and failings. As the current Zonsar Chensei says, Truth exists because of non-truth. 
All this considered, and with eyes wide open, and with an ear to the authenticating voices of the scholastic tradition, I think this is a big oops that cannot be kept from occurring, has already occurred, and is the very nature of all occurrence. In summary, from the standpoint of the Mahamudra tradition, the original oops is the misrecognition of the innate, self-aware, clarity-emptiness nature of mind, a mistake that results in dualistic perception. The instructions of Mahamudra point one's awareness back to that innate nature. But to use such instructions out of context, or to employ them without a proper preparation, especially the understanding of egolessness and non-referential compassion, and the illusory nature of all phenomena, is to heap mistake upon mistake and to potentially cause harm. To then transpose this series of mistakes into a secular framework that has no capacity to accommodate the various and essential aspects of Mahamudra that are beyond concept is to complicate things even further. But as one of the greatest living masters of the Mahamudra tradition, Kempal Sutram Jamso says, Norshing, Norshing, Yamdak Lam Lajuk, making mistake after mistake, I travel the unmistaken path. This is not a license for heedlessness, but is an expression of deep faith in the nature of mind and reality and a voice of wisdom that recognizes timeless insight in the midst of the wild, wild west of the mindfulness movement. It is precisely in the midst of this wildness that the Mahamudra tradition thrives and makes its home. In the end then, making mistake after mistake, may we travel the path of the genuine Dharma. May it be authentically taught in whatever ways fit the various needs and dispositions of all beings everywhere. Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.